0: Hello and welcome to The Graduates, a radio show dedicated to graduate student research here at Berkeley. My name is Stephanie Gerson. I'm a graduate student myself and I'll be your hostess for the show here on KALX Berkeley. So today I'm talking to Russ McBride, a PhD student in philosophy. So welcome, Russ.
1: Thanks. It's good to be here.
0: Uh, We're going to be talking about uh, the way artificial intelligence should be done. So first, can you give us a brief introduction of your
1: work? A brief introduction. Okay. So as Stephanie said, yeah, I'm a graduate student in the philosophy department. I do work in cognitive science and in a subfield within philosophy called the philosophy of mind. And uh, what I'm pitching right now is a theory of the mind based on the principle of homeostasis. So it ties in much more closely with uh, existing fields like biology uh, and physiology. That's the nub of it, really.
0: Yeah, I actually hadn't realized how compatible your work is with the graduate that I interviewed a few weeks ago, Hania Kover, in neuroscience, and uh, maybe I should have had you two speak together. But I guess I'll take this moment and say that I would like to move from interviews to panel discussions Um, And, for example, a panel discussion on artificial intelligence with uh, a, a neurobiologist, a philosopher, and a computer scientist, for example. So if you're interested in panels, and I'm talking to you listeners, then please get in touch through our Facebook page, The Graduates Calex, in quotes, and let me know which topics you'd be interested in. So, back to Russ. Can you talk about how we experience objects and how, how you're using that to think about how we should be doing artificial intelligence? Because I know that's a basis for the work that you do.
1: Yeah, so my dissertation work is an exploration of the question of how we come to form objects in our experience world. So presumably, uh, when we're born we experience the world in a radically different way than we do now, right? So mm-hmm. presumably there's just a flood. There's an onslaught of experience, an onslaught of sensory overload that's not neatly carved up into uh, all the objects that we understand now, like cars and tables and
2: chairs and glasses,
1: microphones, interviewers. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and the question I'm looking at is really a pretty simple one. how is that? How is it that we move from that point where... We just have a sensory onslaught to an experienced world that's filled with all the objects that we come to use and interact with and take for granted on a daily basis. Presumably, we can guess that there's going to be some type of just overwhelming onslaught of sensory input that's unorganized and undifferentiated. Hmm. Um, And then we get to the point where there are actually objects in the world. And the reason why I chose this question as opposed to, you know, any other... Uh, thousands of questions I could have been looking at is because if the answer to this question tells us important things about how the mind works, Mm -hmm. then maybe it's the case that we should reevaluate the way we approach the mind and in turn reevaluate the way we try to model the mind. Mm.
0: It actually sounds a little bit like the story of the Big Bang or even of uh, Genesis now that I'm thinking about it. Because you go from nothingness slash sameness, everything... Th- th- essentially being there no objects because everything is just the same to there being objects or somethingness because all of a sudden there's differences between things.
1: Um, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Um, but uh, I'm all for comparisons of my work to uh, the Big Bang. Right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you respond to the question of how we experience objects by describing the mind as a homeostatic system. So can you talk a little bit about what this means?
1: Uh, well, maybe I should say a little bit about what uh, homeostasis homeostasis system is. Mm-hmm. Um, so homeostasis was discovered by a French biologist, Claude Bernard, who realized that sugar, blood sugar, could be raised or lowered, but it would inevitably gravitate back to a narrow range. And it wasn't until about 50 years later that a Harvard physiologist, W.B. Cannon, um, took that same principle and revived the notion and started applying it to all sorts of other systems in the human body. Um, so uh, I think the first one he applied it to was the constancy of blood pressure. So the blood pressure might go up or might go down, but generally it stays within a, a pretty narrow range. Mm-hmm. Um, blood acidity, you know, stays within a very narrow range. Um, and then all sorts of all sorts of other, you know, arguably every physiological system in your body is a homeostatic system. Mm-hmm. And homeostatic system then is just um, a system that works to keep some parameter within a narrow range, what I'm doing is taking these taking the same principle it's very simple uh, you know arguably the most foundational principle in physiology and saying okay well let's let's imagine that the mind might be a homeostatic system too mm-hmm. okay what would that mean? Um, well, it would mean that um, at the highest level the mind exists to keep something within a narrow range at any given point and then you have some follow-up questions so well what is it that the mind would purportedly keep within a range what is it that the mind would control um, you know what what is that parameter such that it would try to keep it within some kind of range um, <clears throat> and the simple answer I think an obvious one that we all already know is that um, uh, the organism is driven by its needs and values. And its needs and values serve as uh, boundaries, as it were, within which um, its behavior, its actions are controlled.
0: Okay. So for those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to The Graduates. I'm talking to Russ McBride about how artificial intelligence should be done. Okay. So you're not thinking about the mind as homeostatic in a metaphor, sense, you're really thinking about the mind as a homeostatic system that's trying to maintain the parameter between the narrow range being your needs and values. But there's something, at least qualitatively, different between homeostatic systems driven by body temperature and homeostatic systems driven by much more abstract needs and values
1: so um, uh, the thing about uh, say the regulation of our blood acidity level is that it's ever-present it's always it's always going on um, it's always working it's always happening Um, but the thing about the parameters um, that we are controlling when we're exercising our needs and values are, um, that they're changing. Okay. So this is the difference between sort of the raw physiological homeostasis systems and, um, the various types of homeostasis systems of the mind. Mm -hmm. There's, there's a huge number of layers, a huge range of systems between, um, The ability to recognize a physical object like a tennis ball or a baseball, and then all the way up to your needs and values. In my view, there's enough commonality and enough consistency in the structure of the human system such that I think we um, experience uh, basic physical objects pretty much the same way from person to person.
0: Unless you're going through a midlife crisis, and then they all just fall apart. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but, I mean, there are all sorts of things that are going to change. You know, I could be in a bad mood and look at a tennis ball. I can yeah. see the tennis ball as symbolic for, you know, my failed relationship, which uh, started to go downhill after a bad tennis game with my partner You know, mm-hmm. and on and on. Um, but there's a core level of, of understanding of physical objects that I think is pretty much uh, okay. similar.
0: So people can go ahead and change their needs and values without being too nervous that their entire experience of objects will change. Yeah. Okay. So, what does all this mean for artificial intelligence? But first, if you could start with some history of artificial intelligence.
1: Oh, you gave gave me the lead in there.
0: There you go. Take it.
1: (laughs) Okay. Um, This is uh, history of uh, of the mind and and AI in uh,
0: twenty seconds. Wow.
1: Um, So, since Descartes, we've had this understanding of. Um, the mind is a distinct substance from the body. It's still, there's a, you know, there's a huge lingering uh, context in in the sense that we're operating within Descartes' idea of a of split mind and body. Now, Hilary Putnam, who uh, spent most of his years at Harvard, came up with a theory of mind called functional functionalism. And if we're to believe, uh, you know, the common reports, functionalism was and potentially is the most popular theory of mind um, in cognitive science, the idea of functionalism was just that it's not so much um, uh, the the material uh, within which the mind arises, if you will, but it's the function that it has. So if you look at a mousetrap, right, well, what does a mousetrap have to be made out of? Well, it doesn't have to be made out of anything in particular, right? Typically, it's made out of wood and a bunch of springs. But, you know, they sell mousetraps down at the hardware store, I've discovered, that are just pieces of cardboard covered with some, some really sticky glue. You know, but you can also imagine a, a mousetrap that, you know, has a little vacuum suction tube that sucks the mouse into it or, you know, one that's just made of a giant anvil. Right. Know, as long whatever.
0: as it fulfills its function.
1: As long as it fulfills its function, right. So the idea of functionalism is, functionalism is that we should understand a mental state not in terms of um say, the physical stuff out of which it grows, but in terms of its relations that it has to all the other mental states.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, now what this does, so you got two things now, and you got a lot of others that I'm not going to mention, but you've got, you've got Descartes' notion that the mind is distinct from the body, and you've got this idea of functionalism, or arguably the overarching theory in cognitive science, which specifically downplays the importance of the body, right? It says that mental state is relation to other mental states, and those relations can be instantiated, potentially, in all sorts of different materials, right? So this is called the the multiple realizability
0: Mm.
1: of the mind. Um, And then you've got...
0: Multiple realizability of mousetraps.
1: Multiple realizability of mousetraps, exactly. Um, And then you've got Turing, right? You've got got Turing's um, notion of computation, and a huge number of people who saw the uh, the possibility of building intelligent machines based on that notion of computation. That notion of computation didn't specify anything about the kind of material in which those computations had to take place.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So now you've got these three things. You've got this um, background within which, um, you know, we're sort of biased by Descartes' view that the mind is distinct from the body. We've got this theory of functionalism, which specifically downplays the importance of the physical substrate in which these Mental states occur, and you've got Turing's thesis, which doesn't say which doesn't say anything about mm-hmm. physical substrate. Consequently, I mean, all this had practical consequences, right? So, I'm inclined researchers to value, say, building something that could play chess successfully over building some robots that could reproduce, or um, you know, uh, building efficient search algorithms um, versus building something that could uh, move through the local environment as well as like a flea or or a cockroach or a squirrel. Um, it didn't, it didn't put an emphasis on um, things that could actually interact in the, in the world successfully, mm-hmm. you know, something that's taken, you know, eons for evolution to, to build up in, in each of us. A lot of people have been pushing to sort of reunite the mind back to the body, um, against the, the tidal forces, um, led, you know, in part by Turing, you know, but supported by, you know, work by Descartes and Hillary Putnam's functionalism and have all inclined them away from thinking of the body as an important thing.
0: So let's get specific, though, for a second. So can you give an example of an artificial intelligence system designed based on the distinction between the mind and the body versus one that would be designed based on putting them back together or incorporating the kind of, you know, the homeostatic thesis?
1: Yeah, um... Well, almost all of them now are um, are really operating in sort of the traditional vein. So, for example, sort of the, the absolute, um, you know, paragon of, uh, I think, bad bad attempts at okay, in artificial <laughs> intelligence okay. um, would be probably Doug Lennett's uh, psych, CYC, program. Uh, what's he doing? He is, he's gotten a lot of money to spend incredible man hours uh, just taking sentences and adding them into a giant database glued together with a little bit of propositional logic, so a really basic propositional logic. So, you know, cats have four legs. You know, balls can roll. Things sometimes fall from the sky. On and on, right? So the goal is to build up a database, and the idea being this is all done on the principle that um, there's some kind of thing threshold of, of quantity, right? Quantity over quality. So, if you can get enough of these things, all in one database, the thing is gonna sort of spontaneously...
0: Put them uh, together.
1: Yeah. And, and, and know and everything. And become smart, yeah. And act intelligently.
0: So how is that separating the mind from the body?
1: You're I trying mean? to separate knowledge from the body. Okay. That's what's happening. So they're trying to separate that knowledge. They're trying to take take what they think is bits of knowledge, mm-hmm. right, and put them into a system, and thereby make the system intelligent. On the other side of that, you have people like Rodney Brooks, right, He's trying really hard um, with his situated robotics program at MIT, contra the normal vein, to try and build um, creatures that will actually interact with the world. So that's an example of someone who's at least trying to go in what I think is the correct direction. As, so as... do
0: you have an example of something that they've built?
1: Um, uh, Brooks built, for example, a little robotic creature that would go around and... Remove empty soda cans from offices Mm -hmm. in one of the MIT labs. And it doesn't sound like much, but um, if you think back a little bit, circa I think it was 1955 when the New York Times uh, had an article that said uh, uh, there'll be a robot in every home within five years. Hmm. Right. And. You know, artificial intelligence is not really a term that's even used that much anymore because it's it's got a bit of a bad connotation at this point because it's been such an incredible failure, especially when you consider how many billions of dollars have been poured into it over the years. So We don't really talk about artificial intelligence anymore usually, at least the people that actually do the work.
0: Or what are we calling it now?
1: Um, they, they break it up into the subdi- sub-disciplines, uh. right? So, um, you know, search search algorithm techniques or uh. pattern matching or, you know language processing, you know, all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we sort of forget, I think, because we on the Internet a lot, we use computers a lot, that originally people had very commonsensical, very intuitive um, expectations about uh, computation and robotics. Like, what the hell do you want your robot to do? Well, you want it to drive your car to school so you don't have to worry about that. You want it to do your dishes. You want it to take out the trash, you know. <clears throat> Um, you wanted to, you know, help you study for your OCAM midterm, you know, all these things and none of these things really manifested and they didn't manifest because computers have a really hard time uh, doing all those things that we take for granted. And all those, almost all those things are um, sub disciplines of just interacting in the world successfully.
2: You mm-hmm. know?
0: Okay, so now can you be more specific about how you would incorporate the way that you understand our experience of objects into the way that you would design, and, and sorry to call it an artificially intelligent system, we can call it a, a pattern recognition system or something else if you want to.
1: That's but, okay. I'm, I'm operating from the armchair, so it's okay for uh, okay. It's okay for me and, and you to say artificially All right, so an
0: artificially intelligent <laughs> system.
1: Uh, um, well, so my, my hypothesis is that um, we might do a little bit better if we understand the mind as a homeostatic system and try to build systems uh, in a way similar to the uh, way that evolution builds systems. From the systems. big bang. From the big bang. There it all go. comes back to the big bang. Nice. <laughs> you know, I'm in favor of uh, trying to build systems that do the kinds of things that we take for granted, which aren't really very sexy, but which have allowed us to succeed uh, and thrive in the kind of world we we live in, right? So allow us to, um, you know, forage for food, you know, build shelter, interact with the local environment successfully, pick objects up off the ground, uh, things like this. And doing that requires building a system that brings the mind and the body back together again, right? And I think it, it might benefit from building into the system the kinds of homeostatic principles that we see developing, so um, building in the perceptual invariance. You know, if you can build in a large collection of perceptual invariance, my guess, you know, my my hypothesis is that you're going to be able to develop some systems that are radically more powerful than the kinds of systems that we typically see.
0: But how are the perceptual invariance different from the big database that the Paragon artificially intelligent system had Yeah. The, I guess it's just systems. it's part of it but it sounds a little bit similar it's like you come already with these invariants that probably won't change that much but meanwhile you use them you know within the context of a homeostatic system so that the system can still learn and evolve and potentially even change the database as necessary
1: yeah um well I think if you if you program them in to say a laptop it's not going to really help your laptop First, there's a lot more work to be done figuring out exactly what um, the perceptual invariants are. Um, But I think if you can take those and you can build those into a system that can actually interact in the world.
0: Okay, but then what does that mean? It has sensors. It gathers data about the world. I mean, what does that mean as far as the needs and values? because right? yeah. isn't that what the homeostatic system is oscillating around so how yeah. do you i mean you give it a goal essentially right and that's the need or the value towards which it's
1: i, th- I think I think the way the right path to take mm-hmm. right is one where um, you're you're building a system that's integrated you're building you're building a uh, programming program system that's integrated into a an agent that's actually functioning in the world right so that that's part of it another part of it is is building in a lot of the perceptual invariance into the system and perhaps most importantly is building in uh uh into the system a a set of ways for the system to learn from its experience and to begin to form patterns between its uh, motor activity and its input activity
0: Okay, well, we will be right back. On next week's show, I'll be talking to Andy Konwinski, a PhD student from computer science, about his research on measuring and improving the performance of programs that run on supersized computer clusters. So please join me for The Graduates every Monday from 12 to 12.30 on CalEx. And please visit our Facebook page, search for The Graduate K-A-L-X, in quotation marks, on Facebook.com. So welcome back. Today I'm talking to Russ McBride about how artificial intelligence should be done. Okay, so let's talk about the Turing test, So because I know that you've done some work with that. So first, can you explain what the Turing test is?
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um Turing, in an article, wanted to look at uh, machine intelligence. Now, what you're going to standardly do with a topic like that is uh, try and figure out what intelligence is. Mm-hmm. Try and try and figure out what thinking is. Um, now, Turing, being no intellectual slouch, realized that that would be sort of a, a a giant rat's nest to try and tackle. So he said, "Okay, let's let's just take a, a practical approach to this problem." Instead of trying to define intelligence and define thinking in a way that um, people are going to all agree on, let's just look at a a practical solution to the test. So at the time, there was a parlor game. In that parlor game, you put uh, a man in one room and a woman in another room, and you'd pass notes back and forth. Generally, they, they would type the notes out so you can try and figure out anything from the handwriting. And... The goal was to figure out who was the man and who was the woman. So playing on this parlor game, Turing suggested that um, you put a uh, computer in one room and you put a man in another room, and the goal is for um, the computer to uh, respond in such a way that it makes it hard for you to tell uh, who is the man and who is the computer.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So the Turing test has attracted a lot of attention. You know, I guess one thing I want to say is that um, again, what you have here is a case where um, what has been de-emphasized is precisely the the operations of an organism in the world, mm-hmm. right? Because you're saying, okay, well, let's let's create this little barrier here, so we don't have to worry about you know what the computer looks like mm-hmm. or you know or how the robot you know walks or, or any of this stuff. It's just it's just about these responses.
0: Well, it's also a barrier in time. Right, because if you were yeah. playing with the same, if you played the same game for five years, or for a longer amount of time, after a certain point, you would probably be able to tell. The long-term Turing test.
1: The long, yeah. I mean, uh,
0: have you played with any of the? Have you played with Jabberwocky?
1: I haven't. Or Alice. Uh, uh,
0: Do you know what they are? No. They're these little online uh, bots that you can chat with. Oh, and you can tell them anything. You can say, "Hey, how's it going? How's your day? Will you marry me? What's your favorite color?" you know, and see how long it takes for you. And and actually, they can be a little impressive. I mean, a lot of times, you'll notice, a lot of times it'll just kind of change the subject on you, but um, it might be fun for you to play with them. Yeah.
1: All right, let me um, let me back up a little bit and just let's look at um, the idea of intelligence um, for a second with regard to the Turing test. Now, um, the... The first thing about the Turing test is that, by uh, putting putting the computer away in a separate room, putting the person away in a separate room, you've again predisposed the discussion about the topic to be one where you're not having to worry about the embodied nature. Mm-hmm. You're not having to you're not having to uh, test the robot or the computer on its ability to interact in the world successfully. Okay? Right. Now I mean another interesting thing is that we've already sort of prejudiced the conversation uh, about the essence of human nature to be one where we're focusing on what we're calling intelligence um, so you know is a badger intelligent uh, well I mean I don't know I mean it 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 does some nifty stuff you know it survives and um, Builds homes and reproduces and and successfully forages for food and all these things. Now, if if we're talking about that kind of intelligence, and it's a little bit weird to use the word intelligence. So it seems like, you know, with the Turing test, we're probably not talking about that kind of intelligence, right? We're talking about a much more um, abstract kind of intelligence. And we're talking about one, again, where um, the emphasis is on uh, performing reasoning right? And the model here generally being deductive reasoning. Getting back to the Turing test, um, I think it prejudices Mm -hmm. us Mm -hmm. to think um, in terms of a goal that might not be the goal we really want to pursue for building uh, successful systems.
0: Yeah, but it ultimately depends what kind of system you're going to build because ultimately if you end up classifying the different types of of thinking, right, and you say there's reasoning, thinking, and there's cognitive thinking, and there's intellectual thinking, or however you classify it, then when you're trying to design some artificially intelligent system and you know what it's going to do, you can say, "Aha, I need it to do reasoning, I don't need it to do cognitive, or you can yeah. you know pick and choose from from Absolutely. your portfolio of thinking
1: yeah, you don't need to um you don't need a robot that can play a good game of uh one on one basketball with you when well, you I do need to... <laughs> <laughs> we all do. Uh,
0: <laughs> what kind of thinking is that again? <laughs> uh,
1: when you need when you need to, you know, uh, add, add up some really big numbers, you know, when you need to run some hard mathematical calculations and that's what you need. So
0: Okay. Okay, so my last question is cuz I know that you are a um you're a big mountaineer. So <laughs> how does your work? <laughs> In this and on how you experience objects, I'm so curious. How do you incorporate it into your mountaineering and the way that you experience objects Uh, on your way up a mountain? How
1: did you find out about that?
0: Oh, I do my snooping around.
1: Uh, um, How does it, uh, how do they meet? Well, I guess, you know, uh, given my uh, predilection and my downtime, uh, which I don't have much of these days, um, to uh, be outside and uh, engage in physical activities, you know, probably inclined me more than someone otherwise would have been inclined to look at uh, the process of an organism's ability to cope successfully in its environment, you know, more than Someone who doesn't do that kind of stuff more than mm-hmm. somebody who doesn't uh, go mm-hmm. mountaineering or so people go skiing. are just
0: hiking by you and there you are just staring at the at the little beetle that's crossing the path. <laughs> no
1: Um yeah, there's a bit of reflection that goes on. Okay. Sometimes uh sometimes you can think a lot better if you uh Yeah. Get out of your normal cubicle right. office. The and,
0: out of uh, the box thinking. Yes. Okay, good. So thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Russ.
1: Thanks, Stephanie.
0: Okay, so you've been listening to The Graduates, a radio show dedicated to graduate student research on KALX Berkeley. My name is Stephanie Gerson. Please send comments to us on our Facebook page. That's The Graduates CalX on Facebook. And join me next Monday from 12 to 12.30. And the background music for the show has been generously provided by Chris Peck, you can check out his work at myspace.com slash Chris